This morning's passage is 1 Samuel 29, 1 through 11. You can find that on page 251, and the Bible's there in your seats. And while you're finding that, I'll just remind you kind of where we are in the story. For last week, we read of David's relationship to Achish, king of uh, the Philistines, and he had come to fight the Israelites, and Saul was in great fear and consulted a medium. And this morning's passage takes a step back in time. It, it steps back to a few days, maybe even a few weeks, before Saul is confronted with the large army that's gathered. Uh, this happens a few days and weeks before. But we'll pick up with what is happening in the life of David, the promised king. As Saul was told last week, that he was going to die. 1 Samuel 29, 1-11, let us attend to the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamping by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I found nothing in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from that day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of the God. But nevertheless, the command, commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for how it shows us who you are and what you have done, but also how it is a mirror to us that we might examine ourselves before you and seek your wisdom and your ways. Lord, would I serve the purpose of declaring your word? Would you be seen and heard instead of me? And would all that falls short be quickly forgotten? Be with us all, we pray, by your Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. 
I'm going to tell you this morning about Patrick. Patrick was my father and mother-in-law's pug. A sweet and good-natured pug. Uh, He was well-trained and generally well-behaved. He was a therapy dog that would go with them to uh, visit people in nursing homes. And he was a great joy to uh, my father-in-law, Bill, and to my mother-in-law, Nancy. But Patrick got older. And later in life, he grew blind and almost completely deaf. And that would mean that Patrick would often get lost. Not outside, not in the neighborhood, but in his own home, Patrick would disappear. And my in-laws would have to go looking for him, and on many occasions they would find him behind a door that had been opened in the corner behind the door, or behind a piece of furniture. As he wandered around with his limited senses, he could often get himself into these tight corners behind these pieces of furniture, but without the benefit of sight and hearing, he could not get himself back out until he was found. The same is true for us. It's not just a little pug that can get himself stuck. If you want, you can find tons of videos online of children whose heads are stuck in the backs of their chairs or in the railings of stairways who somehow manage to squeeze their heads through but can't get back out. It's not just, though, in physical spaces. We can live our lives in situations and with feelings of being cornered, of being trapped, of being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Maybe it's a a relational pattern that we can't seem to break. Maybe it's in a job that seems to be going nowhere, but we, we don't have other options. Maybe it's just a sense that this is the way it is and this is the way it's always going to be. David is stuck. He has figured out for himself how to get beyond Saul's grasp in Philistia. He has figured out how to make himself valuable to Achish, to become the bodyguard and the trusted leader that Saul rejected him from being. He has become amongst the Gentiles and the nations. And he's done so without fighting his own people. If you were here last week, you will recall that he went out and he struck the Amalekites and the enemies of Israel, but told Achish it was his own people, the inhabitants of Judah, he was attacking. And so Achish was happy. And now, perhaps in part because of David's deception, Achish is marching with a large Philistine army toward Israel. And last week, when the passage jumped ahead, at the opening of chapter 28, we see that it is a gigantic army. And and Saul is figuratively quaking in his boots. He's so afraid that he rejects God's commands to go seek a medium. And so David's stuck. He can fight his own people and disobey God, lifting his hand not only against his family and his tribesmen, but against the Lord's anointed. Or he can face horrible odds 
maybe intending to fight among the Philistines as the Philistines are worried and face almost certain death in the process. For all of David's cunning, for all the further he's gotten himself through, he can't make his way out of this mess. But God can. And God does. He stirs up the Philistines, the commanders who are probably in part envious and in part distrustful of him. They assume that he will betray them to get back into Saul's good graces, maybe by fighting them in battle, maybe in chopping off their heads like he did once before with Goliath. And so despite Achish continuing to trust David, David is sent away. Not only is he sent away, but he's sent away with the approval of the king. Not only now does he not have to fight, but he doesn't have to be anywhere near the battle so that the Israelites can't say that he fought against them and against Saul. Yet again, God is faithful to deliver his servant David. This morning we are encouraged to have hope as we look to God because God's providence is his work of sovereign provision. His loving sovereignty is at work in the world. That the messes that we find ourselves entrapped in, whether the messes of our own devising or through circumstances beyond our control, God, by his power and his providence, is able to deliver us. But I want to say a word before we begin to unpack that. I want to acknowledge that to feel trapped, to feel like there is no way out, can leave us in panic. Like those kids who have their heads stuck in the railings, that nine times out of ten, they are panicking. They are yanking because they assume that they're going to be stuck in that chair forever. Or, like Patrick, we can grow resigned, just assuming we'll never get out. Because sometimes that period of entrapment, that mess, can be endured for a long time. This morning, as I'm trying to point us to the hope of God's deliverance through his care and his power, I do not want to do it lightly. I do not want to do it glibly. For those who are stuck in deep patterns and feelings of grief, for those who are battling certain addictions or certain sinful tendencies, you might hear me in pointing to God's providence say, if you just believed a little bit more, it would be fixed. Brothers and sisters, as I point to the hope that we can have in the midst of feeling trapped and stuck, the only reason for that hope, and the only reason I'm pointing to God as that source of hope is because of how difficult and how long and exhausting these periods can be for us. Whether it's a period of spiritual dryness, whether it is a physical ailment or something else. The need for hope for deliverance is the reason to preach this because so many of us are there. Maybe only for a season, but because we are there, it is often dark and cold and scary. And for some of us, it's not a season. For some of us, it seems like all of life 
as a place in which we are trapped. Maybe David wasn't scared, but he needed deliverance. And for those of us that are fearful, who are exhausted and tired, there is hope. And if you don't feel stuck this morning, praise God. If that hope that you have in Christ is booing you through life, then don't just dismiss this message as, yes, I've got it, I'm hopeful in Christ. What I encourage you to do is consider how others present in your life might be stuck. Who might not find life so easy. So that you are then prepared to sit alongside those who do feel trapped and to point them to the one who provides a way out. This morning, we are encouraged to see God's providence as a means of escape, as a means of deliverance when we are stuck, when we are trapped. We see that God's providence is a reason for hope because God's provision is greater than our cunning. Cunning got David pretty far. He used strategic deception for the sake of preserving his life and the lives of his family members when he entered Philistia. In fact, he did so before the first time he went into Philistia. He deceived either this Achish or an earlier king by pretending to be mad and crazy, and it gave him time and space to figure out another option. His cunning has let him live in the land of the enemy as if he were an alley ally. It's allowed him to gather more men to himself. It's allowed him to gather more resources to himself. And it really seems in this passage he is still seeking to be cunning. As Achish is telling him, hey, the commanders are upset about this, David says to him, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from this day until I entered your service, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Notice he doesn't say that I might fight against your enemies, you, my lord, my king. He speaks broadly, and perhaps he's trying to speak out of both sides of his mouth again so that Akish will not know what is truly going on. But David has gotten used to his ability, his strategy, his tactics. He is a military warrior and champion after all. And yet he can't deliver himself even with his own cunning. This isn't just a problem for David. This is a pattern for most of the patriarchs, our forefathers and mothers in the faith. Abraham and Isaac, his son, both had to leave their region of security, and in so doing and coming under the influence of others, both of them lied saying their wives were not their wives but their sisters, so that the king of the region would not put them to death. And both times, their cunning only dug the hole deeper. And in both those situations, God had to deliver them out. Their cunning had, had prevented a consequence for a moment, but it hadn't released the trap. And so it is here. It is the Lord's use of the fear and jealousy of the other Philistine leaders the reminder of that old song that the Israelites used to sing of David that God uses to send David away. We often take the stance, I got myself into this mess, I can get myself out. 
and maybe New Englanders more so than other people groups. And sometimes we might get out of minor messes. And this can only reinforce the idea, which then causes us to try to use the same tools, the same tricks, the same technology to get out of the next mess. But is anything in our toolbox, is anything of our resources as strong as God's provision? This isn't just a worldly problem for people to use the tools of the world to try to rescue themselves out of their messes. This is something that we struggle with in the church. We, we, we long to see the gospel go forward and bear fruit, and there are times where the church is, is barren, where there are not conversions, where there is not growth. And, and so sometimes the church will respond with what we've seen in what we call the church growth or the seeker movement. And we'll say, ah, oh, we are stuck, and what we need is we need bigger bands, or we need cooler events. We need to be more exciting, more edgy, more relevant, and that will bring people in. And you know what? Sometimes it works. Sometimes those churches grow. Sometimes more people come in, and yet what they begin to trust in is the size of the church or the quality of their music or the likability of their pastor instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that particular style of music or that particular style of dress or design of the building begins to fade, then they have to start all over. But on the other side, there are those we call the means of grace churches, where we say, we're not going to stoop to that level. We trust in worship and prayer and the preaching of God's word and God will act. But at the same time, we can say, well, because that's God's commanded method, we'll do that and it will work. Instead of actually trusting that it's the power of God at available to us when we preach, available to us when we share the gospel, available to us with pray that we expect there to be fruit, not to just say we don't do those other things so God will produce fruit. In the same way, we try to use our methods to get ourselves out of our struggles. But do we have as much at our disposal as God has given us and our brothers and sisters in the church? Do we have as much wisdom in ourselves as God has given us in his word? As much power in us as in his spirit? As much goodness in us as God's son? Can we save enough wealth to shield us from discomfort? Can we make enough friends to escape loneliness? Can we give ourselves enough space to escape when people begin to hurt us? Can we adjust our definitions of righteousness enough to make ourselves righteous before God? The power of God, the providence of God in his power displayed in this world that he governs is greater than anything we can manufacture in our effort, in our wit. And so who should we trust? Should we trust in what we can muster and therefore risk eternal disappointment when it's not enough, or should we trust in what God provides? There is hope for us because God's providence 
in the midst of our messes, in the midst of the traps in which we find ourselves ensnared, is greater than our cunning, our wit, our strength, our own righteousness. Oftentimes we struggle, though, because we don't know what God's providence will look like. And one of the things that this passage shows us as God delivers David is that God's providence often comes from unexpected places. God made the world and he upholds it. And the more we have studied this world, the more we understand how to live in it. We study physics and we begin to understand gravity and how that works. We look at germ theory and can begin to treat illnesses. We, we study sociology and understand how different people groups interact and so we can conduct business and government better. And observing things can make us better able to make good decisions. That's simple wisdom. We read the book of Proverbs and we see how the author has observed the world around him and it teaches him true things. And frankly, there is some wisdom here in what the Philistine commanders are saying. They have learned from the past. 1 Samuel 14 is when Jonathan is given a great victory over the Philistines. And as Jonathan fights boldly on his own with just his armor bearer, it begins to turn the tide of the battle such that there are other Hebrews, other mercenaries, kind of like David, who among the Philistines decide to stop fighting for the Philistines and fight against the Philistines, leading to their great defeat. They have a bit of worldly wisdom. They mention that the best way for David to reconcile with Saul is to put their heads on a platter and give them to Saul, remembering that he had cut off the great giant, the great champion of the Philistines' head off. But there is a difference between wisdom from observing the world versus mechanistic thinking. That is to say that if this works this time, it will always work that way. If this didn't work before, it won't work in the future. And in so doing, to often look at God as if he is just the great algorithm in the sky. But that's not what we see in this passage. God is not limited by our experience. God's ability to act is not limited by the boundaries of our imagination. Take a look with me at verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They are keying off this song in their thinking about the military might and power of David that is beginning to make them nervous about this idea of David and these other Hebrews marching into battle. When have we seen this song before? Well, the first time it's mentioned is in 1 Samuel 18, 7, in the wake of great defeat of Philistines by David and Saul. And what results from the singing of that song? That's the beginning of Saul's envy and jealousy. It begins to turn the tide of his heart against David. So the first time that song came up, it only led to difficulties for David. The second time, 
that song appears is in chapter 21 when David flees to Gath among the Philistines. And it is that same song again that causes the servants of Achish to say, hey king, this guy who has wandered into this city, this is David who Saul killed thousands and David the ten thousands. And it leads him to feign madness so that he can escape. The last two times this song, whatever it was meant to be as a celebration of victory and God's provision of of deliverance for the people, whenever this song has come up for David in the past, it has led to difficulty and danger. But here, the same song that has led to so much hardship, struggle, and fear, here it is used of God as the source of deliverance and the way out. The fear of David's fighting prowess leads them to send him away, and now he doesn't have to fight against his people, nor fight seemingly impossible odds by trying to strike the Philistines among whom he and his people are. This is so often the way that God works his deliverance when we attend to the pattern of Scripture, through the unexpected. God destroys the wickedness that is flooding the earth with a flood in a time in which rain was virtually unknown. He establishes a new people for himself that will be a blessing to the world who will be like the sand of the sea through a barren elderly couple. He blessed the younger child, Jacob, not Esau. The type of king that he chose to lead his people was not the tall, wealthy king like Saul, but the shorter shepherd boy, David. And the ultimate deliverer of God's people was not a mighty military messiah riding out in combat against the Romans, nor a high priest teaching the people all the right rules and regulations around the temple in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem with nothing about him that should attract people's notice of him. He was raised in Nazareth, of which it was asked, what good can come out of Nazareth? And he delivered his people not by taking up power, but by laying it down. Though this is what God has been doing, has said in his word to expect, so many people refused to trust God's provision through Jesus, because it was counter to what they expected. Instead of looking for God's saving providence. For so many years, in fact, not only for decades and centuries, but for millennia, an infection from bacteria was almost always a death sentence, or could be. Until... A scientist doing research on how bacteria grew noticed that in his petri dish that he had left near an open window that some mold had established itself. And that mold produced a compound that prevented the bacteria from growing and not only prevented them from growing but killed the bacteria when it got in contact. For most of the history of humanity, a, a severe infection was a death sentence until a few spores led to the discovery of penicillin and antibacterial treatment as we know it today. 
Is this to say that we only look to God's deliverance through the weird or the wild or the off the wall? No. God used military victories to deliver his people. We have the book of Proverbs that says, if you're hungry, you should be diligent in your work. You should learn and listen. The same Paul who calls for prayer and anointing with oil in order to heal the sick also tells Timothy to drink a little wine to help his stomach. The point is not to say this is the only way in which God delivers, but rather it is to tune our attention, not to the bounds of what we can do, but to what God is doing, whether it's the expected or the unexpected. So whether it is the typical as it seems to David, David, it seems, assumes that he's had military victory when it seemed unlikely in the past. He did defeat Goliath, after all, that maybe here, despite the overwhelming numerical odds, that if he fights wisely, that he will survive and destroy the Philistines that he's surrounded. Perhaps he expects that will be how God's provision displays itself. Or whether it comes through the unexpected, through a a song being quoted leading to a path out. That we should be looking to God and his provision so that we can follow where he leads, so that we can benefit from his providence. God's providence is greater than our ability, our cunning. God's providence often comes in ways that we don't anticipate or expect. And if God's providence is at work, it means that we are never truly stuck. David is still in exile. Even as he escapes this specific trap of being trapped between fighting his own people or dying at the hands of the Philistines if he tries to fight them, he's still not in Israel. He's still in danger. And he's going to face many challenges ahead, many dangers, many seemingly hopeless situations. But this encounter affirms afresh that God's providence means that we are never truly stuck. David is marching with them towards the battle. Towards battle. It's not just that this is even an instantaneous deliverance. He's had probably a few weeks of gathering his men of supplying them, of marching to this place where they've gathered at Aphek. And all the time you can imagine him saying, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to fight my way out? Am I going to have to fight against my own countrymen? Sometimes deliverance takes time. Sometimes it is quick. And sometimes the deliverance, the way out that God gives us, is not something off the wall, but through a situation that seems impossible to get through. That is, that David seems, in his ambiguous answer to Akish, when he says that he wants to serve my lord, the king, without saying you, to Akish, he may be anticipating that he's going to have to fight. And that while he can't see how fighting will produce a victory for him, he can trust that God's providence, that God's power might be at work to deliver him out of those incalculable odds. 
He's willing to go forward because he has learned to trust God's provision in his life, the pattern of deliverance over and over again, so that even if he appears stuck, he knows that he's not. Some of us have been waiting or struggling for a long time. We know those that have. We know those who look, and it seems as if there is no escape from the pain of past wounds, that there is no hope for things to get better, that we're too sick, that we're too lost, that there isn't enough time to fix things before death comes. Death seems to be the clock on the wall of the escape room from which there is no escape. What David has, not knowing that the deliverance will come from the envy and fear of the Philistines is the ability to press forward in the midst of struggle and uncertainty with hope. That sometimes the escape for us, brothers and sisters, is not that God will deliver us out of the situation, but that he will transform our understanding that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst and face of death, we can have hope. Because the means of deliverance of the world came in Jesus who took on human flesh and lived a life of suffering, lived a life of rejection, lived a life of betrayal until that day when he breathed his last to rise victorious over the grave. But in Christ, death, the seemingly inescapable trap, The foe from which there is no running does not seal our doom, but opens our way to escape. Because even if our circumstances are not avoided in this life, for those who trust in Christ, who died on our behalf to rid us of the guilt of sin, of which we could not rid ourselves, death is transformed from the locked door to the way out. So that Paul could say, to live is Christ For Paul to say that in chains, in prison, saying, I have Christ, even though I am physically locked up. And to say that to die is to gain. There's a way out of the hopelessness in a hopeless situation, and the way out in death leads him to the greatest victory. For in Christ, death is not the end, but it is the path to life and life with God. But this death of Christ through which we live, so that though we die, we live, came after a life of suffering. It came after a life of betrayal and mistrust. For some of us, we may have to push through one of the bad options, like fighting the Philistines, to suffer a disease that does not diminish, to continue to put to death in the flesh a sinful desire that is opposed to God, to fight and perhaps to die unvictorious on this side. Because even if we do not escape what is on this side of death, we know that death now provides us an escape, a way out. And if God can transform death into the way of life, then though we don't know what God can do, or will do, we can trust that there is hope in the midst of depression, or in the midst of addiction, or in jobs in which we seem stuck, and even in the sins in which we continue to battle. Growing up, I thought that being a firefighter might be a fun job. 
because firefighters get to put out fires. And when you go to some of the, the safety nights or night out, or when the fire station uh, lets the kids in, the primary thing that they focus on is putting out fires with fire. Seems pretty easy. And yet, if you go online and search for firefighting training, or if you look at a fire engine itself, you notice that chief among the tools are axes and crowbars and the jaws of life, as we call them. Because so much of the job of firefighters in rescuing people suffering from fire is the task of breaking in. So much of what they have to do to rescue those stuck in wrecked cars, those trapped in burning buildings, is not to coach the men and women how they can get out. How they can cut themselves free from a mangled car. How they can burst through a burning door. But it's for the firefighters to break in. To break down those doors. To open up that mangled wreck. This is the hope of Advent, brothers and sisters. Not that those who wander will find a way out. Nor that those who wander in darkness will learn to see better in the dark. But that those who wander in darkness have seen a great light. That God has shown his light into the world in the coming of Jesus Christ. So that this world that was transformed from a paradise into a prison by our sin. God breaks down the door to deliver us out of it. He entered in through the womb of a virgin and he is coming again through the clouds. So let us have hope though we feel stuck, though we may feel trapped, and though we may be stuck for a little while longer, knowing that there is a way out because the Son of God has broken in and he is coming again. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that the messes and the traps of our own creation are not the end. That when we cannot escape, when we cannot stop sinning, when we cannot forgive, when we cannot break free, that you can change our hearts, that your spirit can breathe power in us, that you can work circumstances to bring us freedom and deliverance and salvation. We see that in the coming of Christ. Our hope is not in us fixing this world, but in Christ coming again and making all things new. It's in him that we trust. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.